This is Saving Brothers with Philip Robertson on the Saving Brothers podcast. Hello, friends. Well, back for another podcast. It's been one heck of a busy week. I think we've caught up with about half a dozen people around the world travelling vicariously, and we've spent a fair bit of our time on the Saving Brothers podcast in the good old US of A, and we're back again, and I'm absolutely pumped to bring to you Forrest Jones from the US. Forrest, good morning. It's my time. Good evening in your time. How are you, brother? How are you? I'm doing great, Philip. How are you? I'm amazingly well. I've had a couple of long blacks this morning of coffee, so I've got a little bit of caffeine in me. I've got a busy day. It's actually a public holiday here in Australia. It's Good Friday, so we're a little ahead of you uh, on the uh, clock. But, uh, yeah, I've got a busy day, and I'm excited to prepare for uh, Easter Sunday. We've got family coming on uh, Sunday, so we're going to put on a a spit of uh, lamb, pork, and uh, chicken, and marinate it. It'll be a bit of fun getting the family together. That's Forrest, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up straight away, brother. How's your day going out of 10? My day is going 9 or 10 out of 10. I had a chance to get out in sunshine here in Chicago, went for a nice walk to the coffee shop. Walked Beautiful. Back. Just having a Beautiful. good day so far, yeah. Home of the Mighty Bears and uh, the home of the Bulls, I remember. Exactly. I always yeah. loved my American football and my um, Michael Jordan days. Wow, you know, growing up as a teenager, oh, you're on top of it. Oh, absolutely. Top of the pops. Forrest, what I love always is to learn about you, your backstory, how you've landed here talking to me today at Saving Brothers. So for our audience, our global audience, Forrest, tell us a bit about Forrest Jones and who you are, where you've come from and what you do. Well, I'm a retired family physician, over 40 years of practice. And so I've had the experience of working with men of course, and men who've had prostate challenges uh, of all types, whether it's cancer or enlarged prostates. You know, these are things that we end up having to go through. And I'm in that age myself. What can I say? <laughs> but, you look good, though, brother. Thank you, man. You're doing too well, doing well yourself. Feeling um, good. When, when I was um, power of attorney for our parents, okay, uh, both my mother and my father, I realized at that time that as a doctor, I was not having conversations with my own patients about what type of care they would want to have toward the end of their lives or when they were just not able to do the things that they always did. And the kids would have to step in and help out. What would that look like? What would they want? I was not having these conversations with my patients. And I realized as far as good comprehensive care is concerned, I really should be talking to them. So I decided to gird up and, and try to do it, and I couldn't do it. <laughs> Not enough time, and I'm sure the same experience that you have when you go to visit your doctor, right? Not enough time. The doctor's rushing. Uh, there's just a lot of things going on. And very often when I would try to schedule a specific visit for this kind of conversation, very often my, my patient would come in, and they'd have something else that had happened that took priority. So we just never seem to get around to this. And I found that if I could come up with a way of taking that one conversation and breaking it down into parts that I could just do on, on a routine basis, that would work. And I found out when I started actually trying to engage my men, particularly, 
that really in, revived my own passion for why I became a doctor in the first place. It was less about checking boxes and following guidelines and, and prescribing and more about relationship because people were talking and I'm responding as well. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're spot on as well with what you said. We refer in Australia to eight-minute medicine. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, you've only got eight minutes or you want to book a long appointment. A long appointment is usually like 15 minutes. And, of course, you get in there and you want to break the ice with the doctor. How you been? What's been going on? And unless you've got a shopping list of things, that time goes so quickly. Yes. Really hard. And to it's, build uh, up. it's hard on you and it's hard on us as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can only but imagine the incredible pressure doctors must live with when they've got a, a lot of people wanting to see them. And, and invariably, you go to see your doctor, certainly in my country, yes. that they're always running late. That's oh, right. How's he going today? Oh, he's a, yeah, because <laughs> you can't all of a sudden, if someone's got a major thing going on, yes, and you can't just say, oh, sorry, time, got to go and you've just had to deliver a diagnosis or you've got to create a plan of attack and this, and you may have to contact another specialist or a, a referral. Right. Absolutely. And I also, if I can interrupt, um, and yeah, it's also a, a strain on you because you're really trying to understand how to make a good decision about what your needs are and you want to use your doctor as a resource, but if you really have trouble maybe articulating what your need is or trying to put your finger on it. You're not able to leverage the doctor's knowledge to the degree that you need. And sometimes you don't even know how to do that yet because you haven't had the support or training to help you do a good job with that. So that's where you guys come in. That's where you guys come in. Absolutely. And I think really when people, you look at your doctors, and I'm not just talking going to the physician, but saying when you go and see a surgeon, Yes. People often say, oh, they haven't got a good bedside manner because I guess that's not something when you're at college, when you're, you're going to study to become a doctor, that's not probably part of what it was all about. That's true, and we don't see it modelled. So when we actually get into our training where we're at the bedside and we have a senior physician guiding us, um, if they don't happen to have those skills or model those skills, that's the best opportunity for us to learn, and that's an opportunity that we may miss. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So let's talk today. The real topic is about end of life or planning for end of life discussions. Why do you think these are difficult questions or difficult discussions for doctors and for people in general? Well, for one reason, our medicine, our expectations of medicine are more in terms of cure. Yeah. You know, how do we fix it? And another thing, I heard a presentation by a palliative medicine specialist, and she said something that was an aha moment for me that seemed obvious point, but was like over my head. She said that dying is not a medical condition. It's a human condition. Spot on. You know? And I thought, that is so obvious, but it's so obvious that it just totally goes over our head. And that's where in the doctor's office, if we can actually approach this as a relationship issue and not as a something to treat with drugs, chemicals, or procedures, 
but something that we engage each other in relationship. And so that's something right now because we have an aging population where this is more of a topic. People are not having sudden events that take them out, but it's a long process for so many of us. We've never had this before until this generation, and we're learning together. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like I think dealing with the pandemic. There's no roadmap. So we're having to just navigate this stuff. And I think absolutely, very similarly, end-of-life conversations, and you're right, you're spot on. That palliative uh, conversation about it's a human condition. We're all we're all going to go. Well, I used to love uh, Jim Rohn. Do you remember Jim Rohn? Yes. Jim Rohn was American. He's one of my absolute favourites. I got, I was very fortunate to see him speak live in my 20s Did in Australia. You? Okay. But he talks about security and he says people worry about having security in life and he used to say, but I'll tell you one thing, you're not going to get out alive. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All go this, point. I would say this, that um, when I – learn how to actually have these conversations myself because I had to get over that resistance. Yeah. What I learned was if I had a better idea of how the values that guide your decisions toward the end of what you want, help me to understand how to help you have a better life today. Yeah. And so I would ask people about bucket list. Totally. So if someone, you know, might be in their eighties, for example, and especially if they're an active senior, What's on your bucket list? You know, the the tables say that you have maybe X number of years to live. Well, that's a number. Okay, we've got a boundaries there, but let's not put things off. Is there someone you wanted to visit? Are there things you always wanted to do that you never got around to? Maybe we can make that a plan for this year. I love that. Yeah, because I think so many people just, they don't give thought to that there will be finality. Yes. and. I interviewed a fellow, Clint Arthur, who's known as a celebrity entrepreneur. He's worked with Oprah and five US presidents. And what he said is he lived his life as if this is the final year. So what are all the things I need to get done in terms of my goals and, as you call it, the bucket list? I think we're not present in our lives too often, Forrest. We live on autopilot. We just kind of think it just we drift along. And, I, and I'm really loving this conversation purely because it's bringing attention and focus that these are things that we don't plan for. And then when we're getting, I'm only guessing, but I'm, and please correct me if I'm off, off kilter here, but I just don't think we plan well for these discussions. And at some point it's like it, it comes upon us. And, and if you've done some study or preparation towards that end-of-life conversation, it's, it's going to make the pain of the for the loved one and for the family as well more manageable, I would have thought, for us. Well, that's where your mission is really a powerful one because, you know, as men, we always tend to think of results and outcome. Yeah, very but true. Very true. When we talk about advanced care planning, which, yeah, there's a result or outcome. We're not getting out of here alive, right? But it's the journey that's important. Totally. And totally. so this helps me to kind of um, communicate and even try to live it myself where it's the journey now. It's not the outcome or the result. It's like it's not where, well, once I get there, then I've arrived, then I'll have fun, then I'll start living. No, totally. it's every day. The journey is the main thing. 
Absolutely. And I'm so glad you're saying this because so many people say, I'll be happy when. When? When I'll be happy when I get the job, get the pay rise, get married, have kids. And one of my ex-bosses that I worked for, he said, Phil, wherever you are, be there. Be present in that moment. Live in that moment. Smell the trees. Smell the flowers. If it's a pine tree, you know, enjoy. Take the aroma in and just go for a walk. Maybe get in bare feet outside. It reminds me of Richard Gere in Pretty Woman. If you remember that scene, he's this high corporate guy, takeover king, and he takes off his shoes and he's just walking along. He's like he's grounding. He's earthy. I love that. We need to do more of that, and that's kind of what we want to think about now, certainly at this stage of our lives, you know. Absolutely. It's kind of like what I'm loving about our conversation. It's a wake-up call. It's not to frighten people. It's to say, hey, this is just part of the human condition. This is what happens. At some point, we all go somewhere. Right. Let's just be better prepared. What? Why do you think it's important to have an advanced care end-of-life plan? Well, it's interesting because I kind of think of myself, now I can really um, respect the, the challenges that insurance salesmen have <laughs> because we're asking people to make decisions about something that may happen. Yeah. hope won't happen, but of course, we're all going to go away, but that's that's going to happen, but we don't want to think about it. But the problem is that it's so much worse if we have not prepared. And totally. for totally. us, it's really a huge burden on our families. Whoever survives, they really take the, the, the burden. They take the brunt. And that's really not what we really want to do. That's really not the legacy we want to leave. But that's what will happen unless we actually take, take action. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's all about preparation. And one of the things you said before was the medical fraternity is so much about dealing with the what's the symptom. What we want to be doing is prevention. So we want to manage all of these things so much better by, by taking more active steps and yes. being much more engaged in these conversations. And I think they are. We've actually, interestingly, we're starting to see advertisement or adverts on TV where the daughter is talking with the mother and she's saying, so the mother says, well, I'm ready for that discussion now about going into a retirement home. That's an example of we're starting to prepare that there are changes. Right. That's part of life's journey. I've got my mother. She's got dementia. She's in care. She lives five minutes away from me. But we had to make difficult decisions. We've just had to sell the unit to help pay for the care. And that's just part of the journey. It's like, okay, as responsible children, yes. children, it's our responsibility to be there to care and to plan, plan ahead. I want to ask you, let's say, from a patient's point of view, what are some ways to, for us on our side of the fence to mm-hmm. more effectively communicate with our doctors? particularly in light of we don't have much time when we're in those appointments. Right. There's some ways that you can prepare in advance. Well, one way, of course, if you have um, something that you want the doctor to address, if you have written some things down, a list, that does help. And I would limit it to the top three issues. One thing I would add as well is, you know, as doctors, we want to give you test results and 
we order tests and report, and then we give you reports. One thing I learned when I started looking at advanced care planning, what does it mean? So if you hear numbers, um, you in your own mind are wondering, okay, now doc, what does that mean? But as doctors, we're, we need to know what does it mean to you as well? So um, basically I have um, created three questions that I thought were in my patient's mind that I would try to address. And so I'm going to flip it so that number one, you can kind of confirm whether I'm right about these three questions. And then if you have a chance to think of these three questions in advance, it helps you to put the doctor's information in context that's meaningful for you and that would help prepare you to make decisions because the whole purpose of getting information is to make a decision and take action that's going to help make you better. Or if you're a caregiver for someone else, help them to have a better life as well. So the three questions are, how am I doing? What does it mean? And what do I do? So how am I doing is a pretty broad question because in a sense, it's a diagnosis. And with the diagnosis, what is the status of my diagnosis? Is it an early, middle, or late stage? Is it a benign situation or is it something serious? And so that kind of uh, brings up questions. And so um, I would, uh, as a doctor, want to ask in terms of how am I doing? I want to know how you're doing. And I'll ask you on a scale of your of wellness, would you say that you are doing very well, well, fair, or poorly? And then listen to your feedback. And I've gotten some very interesting feedback on that because I'll have someone who is actually looking very well to me, but because they have, they have aches or pains that might interfere with sleep or whatever, I would not have heard about that. But when I put that question to them, then they're giving me feedback. And then I'll ask them, well, if there's one change that would take you from a poor or a fair to the next level up, what change would that be? What would you want to do? And then I get feedback. And very often it's not medication. <laughs> very often it's not a procedure. But it helps me to understand, okay, what can I do that's really meaningful? I'm not just treating a guideline. I'm not just checking off a box. I'm not just executing my training. I'm really doing something that's helping somebody, which is really why I wanted to be a doctor in the first place. Absolutely. And we did talk about that off air before that was not trained to really have those conversations. Correct. And I think it's very difficult both on doctor and on patient that there is this such small window of time to be able to really open up and have a, a meaningful discussion and I, I think the three questions are really great. It's a great idea. So it's really about being prepared. Being prepared and open, finding a way for it because if people want to talk about these things and there's no clear-cut way to do it, this opens the door so we can have those conversations. Absolutely. What if, from, Let's say from a, from a doctor's point of view here, Forrest, to what extent do you think your patient's reluctance, resistance to end-of-life care discussions are a real barrier to you 
in terms of the, the effectiveness that, that you want to have in, in that area? I would say this. The, the main barrier for a patient is the doctor's own resistance. That's interesting. You know, yeah, because when I found... Right, because when I found that I had a comfort level, then I could actually, number one, um, kind of in my own behavior, present that. Because if I come in and I want to raise this conversation, but I'm feeling tight and looking very um, either insecure or unprepared or uneasy, that's only going to make you feel worse. And as a patient, it's already a bit... uh, um, uh, a, not a comfortable conversation. If the doctor's not comfortable, then that's pretty much a non-starter. But I found that once I had a comfort level and a mindset that this is really actually meant to make your life better, you know, and actually ease your mind about some concerns, because I know you're thinking about these things. If you're older, you're kind of wondering, well, how's my daughter going to do? How's she going to make it? She depends on me for this. Or you know, we have this relationship that maybe we haven't resolved. But these are things I may not have anybody to talk to about. Or Now, there's not a lot of time, obviously, in the exam room to get into a lot of uh, uh, profound issues. But just my um, willingness and openness helps. And I can kind of push it and kind of frame it in ways that people can find uh it's For one thing, for example, I might be talking to someone who's uh, maybe 73, and I'll say, well, 45 years from now, 50 years from now, toward the end of your life, what would you want? Well, Doc, I don't want to live that long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to somebody who's 83, 85, you know. Well, you know, 30 years from now, at the end of your life, Doc, I don't want to live that long. Well, I've broken the ice now. I've broken the ice. And now we can actually start to chat a little bit. Now, we can't get a lot done in a few minutes, but at least it's on the table now. Yeah. It's on the next time you come in, I can always bring up a little, ask for a little bit more information, a little more information, and it's not scary. It's not, Doc, why did you bring that up? Is there something wrong? Because one thing I realized when I first started bringing up advanced care planning, what everybody hears is a delivering bad news conversation. Yeah. Am I going to have a heart attack? Yeah. You see yeah, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And that's the biggest uh, barrier that people first have is, Doctor, you bringing this up, there's something wrong. You're about to give me some bad news. Yeah. And so and even that. doctors have that. When I mentioned that the doctors, I want to start having them talk. The first thing they think about is delivering bad news. So once we recognize this is not delivering bad news, it's really good comprehensive care that reframes it. And now we can talk a lot more freely. Do you think perhaps as a precursor so that they don't automatically go into that whole fight or flight and think, oh, my God, this is not good, that there's a better way to bring it up in terms of the question? So I'm not bringing this up, by the way, there isn't any bad news. Is there a way that we could frame the question so that they don't automatically go into panic mode? Because if they go into panic mode, they're not really, they're not engaged, they're not listening properly. They're too busy or worrying. Yes. Well, I found it's best just to bring it up, and I would call it advanced care planning, and it is planning. Yeah. Um, Now, one thing I compare it to is what pediatricians call anticipatory guidance. 
That's a long word. But basically, that's when a a baby's born. Then part of the education process for the parents is this is what you can expect in the first year of life. Yeah. You know, they should have these types of um, behaviors they're able to do, things they're able to do. They're going to need these vaccines at two months, four months, you know, and so forth. And this is when you can start uh, advancing food and, you know, solid food and things like this. And so here's what you can expect over the first year, two years of life. Now, if we talk about advanced care planning, that's the same thing. So when the doctor, we have what's called a problem list. As, and we have a list of diagnoses of the conditions that we're working on on your behalf. One thing we can do is look at that problem list. Sorry about the word problem. That's kind of ours. It's not, <laughs> you're not a problem. <laughs> it's just kind of the terms that we use. But if I look at that list and think, which of these diagnoses is most likely to be life-limiting for you, then I can build a plan around that. So if you have a heart condition, we can talk about well, here you are today. Now, the natural course over time toward the end looks like this with these stages. You're getting educated now. So that's part of giving you some anticipatory guidance, what to anticipate, what to be aware of. If you're a family caregiver, you want to know, Doc, what are the things I need to be aware of, not only in terms of from now toward the end so that I don't have expectations that are not realistic, but also what type of warning signs will let me know this person needs to go to the emergency room or we can manage at home. And that kind of addresses the third question of what do I do? And there's an action plan for each of those stages. But basically, you've given someone. Now, for most of us, we will not have a single um, illness. Some of us will have cancer. Some of us will have heart attacks. But for probably most of it, it'll be more frailty or dementia. Yeah. And so that's um, not only stages of that, but also that encourages us to opportunities now. Did you know that physical activity and physical fitness is the main um, preventive or main benefit for frailty dementia? So and I think, that becomes yeah, a way to get people active, get people out of their chairs, get people walking, get people working out because they, yeah. that's the most uh, beneficial thing that we can actually do better than any medicine. Of course, proper eating is, is essential as part of that. Yep. That physical fitness, resistance, exercises, keeping your muscle mass up, that's the message. And what about sleep? Where do you see sleep in this? Because sleep is essential. You've actually, I think you've got that three-legged stool, nutrition, um, fitness, and sleep. Yeah. And regular and I, relationships. We had to have relationships in there. Yeah, because I think, again, we were talking off air for us and I was talking to you about one of the key pillars of where Saving Brothers is headed is really bringing an understanding and education around the importance of sleep, that it washes the toxins, as you know, out of your brain when you're sleeping. It's a prevention tool for things like cardiac disease, Alzheimer's, and we at Saving Brothers really we live longer too. We live longer. We live longer. With good yeah, yes, we yeah. Because I know myself, I in the past, and I've got obstructive sleep apnea, so I use a CPAP machine, and I'm now I go to sleep earlier at night, and I start to 
wind down and turn off the TV and put the phone away. I used to go around myself and I'd say, oh, I only need four, four and a half, maybe five hours a night of sleep and I'd be wondering why. Yeah. I mean, I still get up in the morning at 4.30, but I go to bed earlier. And it's macho too, right? It's macho. Yeah, come on. You know, yeah, I don't need sleep. badge of honour. <laughs> but we're unfortunately shortening our lives. And so one of the things we love about what we're doing, and that's why I'm so excited about this discussion, is we want to educate people. Saving Brothers is about giving men and women resources and tools to make better pre-planning decisions around Prevention. I mean, one of our greatest goals at Saving Brothers Forest is about helping men reclaiming the sovereignty over their physical and mental mm-hmm. health. I like that. I like that. Yes. Yeah, it's very important. Very important. Like so that. this is a big one because I know doctors work really, really long hours. I mean, I just am, and I've got friends that are surgeons and like that. As you know, when they're interns, they would work these ridiculous stretches, and, and there must be huge pressure on doctors, not just medical doctors or surgeons, but physicians. So to what extent does physical and emotional exhaustion impact your work? I mean, you're a doctor for 40 years, so who better than to ask you? Correct, correct. And I think you hit something, uh, hit the nail right on the head because, um, as I'm sure you know, COVID has actually made it worse. Yeah. Burnout, and you're yeah. seeing professionals leaving the, the profession which is really sad. Um, the issues were there before COVID. COVID just actually magnified the conditions that were already there. Yeah. And there are several factors uh, for that, and it may be different in different parts of the world in terms of how medicine is practiced. For example, in the United States, so much more practice, which had been done in solo practices or small groups, now we're pretty much... Uh, employed, and so it's the corporatization of medicine. I think the challenge for doctors there is that uh, we may feel that we have lost a sense of autonomy and mastery. Autonomy and mastery. So autonomy is more or less, um, I can make my own independent decisions about the care needs of my patient. Mastery is my ability to actually carry that out based on my skills and training. Uh, but once we're in a setting where um, we are employed, then there are other boundaries and guidelines. And there's, so there's a tension in terms of that. Now, one uh, impact uh, that I noticed, of course, was how much time you actually get to spend with your patients. Um, and it seems that for some reason, the um, economics have still to be worked out where doctors can really spend more time, but at the same time, the uh, it support it makes financial sense for the company. That's a big question. I think priorities are being worked out now. And as we talk about uh, an aging population, where more of the care has actually been being done in the home. Yeah. It's one thing that most of the care is done in the doctor's office or the hospital setting, which was the case before we had a lot of chronic illnesses. But now with people living longer and living with illness or conditions, medical conditions, the care has to be done um, at home. And so people need to be informed and feel confident 
in their their own ability to manage. And so we want to be able to provide resources. And that takes time to be able to provide to provide you with what you need to care for yourself or your loved one. And so we're trying to work that out now. So probably over the next five years and using different technological tools, which you're talking about with your app there. And that's, you're going to see a lot more of that. You're going to see a lot more of telemedicine where uh, professionals can interact with you. And one of the benefits of COVID is that it's made that acceptable. These resources were there before, but they didn't, they weren't felt to be trustworthy, but now we've had to, because we had no other recourse. And so, we've had a chance to get a, a comfort level, both from the professionals being able to feel that this is legitimate delivery of care. And for you at home, having the skill set to actually conduct a telecommunication visit. Yeah, telehealth's actually taken off in Australia. I think it's become, as a result for us uh, with COVID, that it's become an acceptable way. It's a bit like doing Zoom meetings. We're used yes. to doing meetings in my, in where I'm from, Melbourne, Australia, for us, we are the most locked down city in the world. Unfortunately, oh, we have an enviable uh, honour that we, yeah, so the psychological impact has just been so incredible. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and when we talked about physical exhaustion and emotional exhaustion in the medical field, I mean, I can only but imagine that I, I know it's difficult to even to get in to see doctors part of the time, particularly if you're dealing with mental health issues. I know I spoke to people in the United Kingdom. I'd be interested in the US as well, that sometimes you've got to wait three months to yes. actually physically get an appointment to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, get a referral, and the pressure is on the system. And we've already, and you, I wonder if it's the same in the US, because already in Australia we have a very high suicide rate of young doctors. Yes. Same here. Yes. Yeah. And that's another area for us at Saving Brothers. We need these conversations. We need to bring the doctors into these conversations so that they, because, of course, when they're in college, they're put up on a pedestal as these brilliant people and of course, when they, my understanding when I've had conversations with people in the medical industry is that mm-hmm. then they go into the hospitals and they're at the bottom of the totem pole all of a sudden and they're not treated well. And it's like, wow, and the pressure yeah. that they're under. So, well, we get used to working those long hours there. And, and I found that the, that was a problem for me because when I left training, that was pretty much my standard. And we don't learn how to take care of ourselves. As right on. Yeah. One of the reasons why I developed my system for advanced care planning was really for doctors initially, because I found that um, one of the outcomes, if you're able to have these conversations, is that it stimulates my curiosity and stimulates my empathy. And those are two things that healers need. Because if I'm not curious, I'm tempted to, first of all, get very bored. And that's going to increase my dissatisfaction with what I'm doing. And as a disservice to you, it can make me want to come to a conclusion too soon. Yeah. You may have some symptom that you're expressing. And the first thought that comes to my mind, I want to run with that, shut down any further conversation. Let's move on. But that may be misleading. Yep. But if I'm curious, and then I'll say this also, we're human. 
And so we may have a patient who just kind of strikes us in a way that's just not our favorite patient, you know, for a lot of different reasons. We all make first impressions and things like that. Yeah. And we have to, I found that my curiosity helped me overcome that natural barrier that we all have. And I might have someone who looks pretty unappealing to me in the beginning and they could turn out to be the most, not only um, most interesting person of the day, but they may actually be someone who actually inspires me. Yeah, right. And I would have missed that opportunity if I had just gone only with my first impression. But with a little curiosity, asking a few more questions, just to be curious about them as people or even about their condition, I may learn something that actually inspires me. I think that's a great frame of mind. And and a, a way of looking at that perhaps could be this person in front of me right now is the most important person I'm going to meet today. Yes. And if you take that sort of attitude into every appointment and want to say, what can I learn here myself? How can I get this better? Really, I think that relationship between the both doctor and patient is going to be enhanced. What I'd like to... I was going to to add this real quick. The empathy part is because the doctors are very practical. Sure. You know, we have to be very practical. So the empathy part is... How I want to be able to look at the diagnosis through your eyes. How does it look through your eyes? Yeah. And right. then also, if I want to propose a treatment, how does that look through your eyes? It, then right. I start to get right. some feedback that I can actually work with that's very practical. So it's not really woo-woo and guessing and I have to, you know, learn all types of behavioral, you know. It's just a simple question. Okay. Um, this diagnosis, um, what do you think about that? You know, how does it make you feel? Uh, will that change your ability to go to work? Or your relationship with other family members, will that put stress on other family members? You know, or does that even make you question if you have a really serious diagnosis? Does that even kind of make you question your faith even? Because some yeah. people really cool. can be traumatized by a diagnosis that just really scares them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've had cancer. I know what it was like receiving. It was almost like being in an out-of-body experience. I was watching a movie. I was driving along, and, and I'll never forget my urologist saying to me, well, it's not the news I wanted to tell you, brother, but uh, you've got a tumour. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, is this surreal? Is this really happening? And then I remember arriving in his doctor's office and sitting on the table, waiting there with my wife at the, at the time, was a prostate cancer kit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, is that for me? He used the word tumour, not prostate cancer. And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn for that relationship. And, Forrest, I think we could be talking, really, you and I for hours on this stuff, and I would love to have you come back as a guest. Appreciate it. Yeah, and and as we spoke offline, I'm going to invite you to write an article. I'm actually going to talk to you about possibly even getting involved in in hosting a podcast for Saving Brothers because I think the way you could deliver some really great information, I'm sure you've got some great people in the medical profession you'd love to talk to as well under the banner of Saving Brothers. So that's a conversation that we'll, uh, we'll take offline. As much as I would love to continue chatting, unfortunately we've run out of time today. But I just, I'm, I'm so glad, I'm so, so grateful that we've been able to have 
a really important, powerful conversation, one that really every family needs to have. And I think today's discussion with you and I is just the start of a wonderful journey together where we can really serve and lean into our purpose, which is ultimately to help people be the best version of themselves in the way they go about their daily lives. So, Forrest, it's an absolute pleasure meeting you, brother, and having you at Saving Brothers on our podcast today. Certainly been my pleasure. Thank you, fella. Absolutely. Take care of yourself, Forrest. Okay. All the best. This has been a Saving Brothers podcast. Thanks for listening.